6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his teaching on the book of 2 Kings, chapters 17 through 20. So Abshekha returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he was departed from Lachish, and when he had heard say of Turhaka, the king of Ethiopia, Behold, he is come out to fight against thee. And he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall ye speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God, in whom thou trustest, deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly, and shalt thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, which my fathers have destroyed, as Gazim, Haran, Rezef, and the children of Eden, which were in Athelasar? Where is the king of Hamath, and the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Shevarim? So he's repeating the same argument again. And Hezekiah received the letter. This case, see, in this case, it's in writing. Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah does something interesting with this letter. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. I like this. He takes it with him and lays it out so the Lord can read this thing. <laughs> he lays it out, you know. <laughs> and Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwelleth between the cherubims. You know, the Lord is always pictured as between or amidst, above and between these cherubim. We get the impression he spoke audibly to Moses. He did, uh, uh, here he's going to be speaking through Isaiah. But anyway, um, it was dwelt between the cherubim. Thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, thine eyes and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which hath sent him to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. See, in other words, Hezekiah is acknowledging for God that the Assyrian victories are not ascribed to their idols because they're nothing. They may have won, but not because of those idols. That's his point. Now therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. That's the right basis, isn't it? For your glory, God. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, That which thou hast prayed to me against the of the king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin of the daughter of Zion hath despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee. And that's a, a strange... Um, better catch up with myself here with my notes so I don't... There's a, the good news is when I'm going fast like this, I, I spare you a lot of boring background, but I want to make sure I don't miss anything important. See, the first part of God's judgment, verses 20 through 28... 
gave the reason for his judgment on Sennacherib. And the figurative poetic language was probably used to stress the importance of the divine source. The virgin daughter of Zion suggests that Jerusalem had never been conquered and since it passed into Israelite control. And uh, Jerusalem would despise and mock Sennacherib, shaking her head as the Assyrian king fled from her. That's the picture that's being presented here rhetorically. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed, or against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? See, Sennacherib had used, he raised his insulting voice and blasphemy and pride, not against the city, but against God. That's where he makes a big mistake. And uh, this was his great sin, and it's, of course, his undoing. And he and his messengers had insulted the Lord by claiming their victories were the result of their own might. Not so. By thy messengers thou hast reproached the Lord and said, With a multitude of my chariots I am come up at the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and will cut down the tall cedar trees thereof, and the choice fir trees thereof, and I will enter into the lodgings of his borders, and into the forest of his Carmel. I have digged and drunk strange waters, and with the sole of my feet have I dried up all the rivers of the besieged places. Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it, and of ancient times that I have formed it? Now have I brought it to pass that thou shouldest be to lay waste fenced cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were of small power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as grass of the field and as the green herb and as the grass on the housetops as the corn blasted uh, before it had grown up. See, in other words, the conquered people had no power to resist and uh, could not even attain normal full strength, like, you know, and so forth. All this had been God's doing, not what they, not they're doing. Verse 27, but now, but I know thy abode, thy going out, and thy coming in, and thy rage against me. Because thy rage against me, and thy tumult is come up into mine ears, therefore I will put my hook in thy, in thy nose, and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way which thou camest. Woo. The, the, the hook and, well, the, 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 the rhetoric here is pretty, Pretty clear. God is promising to do to them what they had done to others, in effect. We have uh, uh, Assyrian uh, uh, inscriptions on monuments that the conquerors uh, often uh, led their captives with a line that passed through the rings that had been placed through the victims' noses. We actually see that in the inscriptions. And God's using that same language. He's, that's what he, in effect, is going to do the equivalent to back to them. And this shall be a sign unto thee. Ye shall eat this year such things as grow of themselves. And the second year, that which bringeth of the same. And the third year, sow ye and reap and plant vineyards and eat fruits. This is what God's saying to the residents of Judah. That you're going to eat things that grow themselves. And the second year, you're going to have a, uh, the spring the same. The third year, you're going to sow and reap and have vineyards and so forth. And the remnant that has escaped of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they shall escape out of Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. Now this is Isaiah prophesying to Hezekiah what God said. Now this is a gutsy prophecy. You've got a couple of hundred thousand archers outside the city walls. If there's one trigger-happy archer that shoots one arrow over that wall, this prophecy is punctured. Notice what Isaiah is saying. Or God's saying through Isaiah. He shall not come in the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come against it with a shield, nor cast a bank against it. Now, if you're listening, if you're Hezekiah, 
That's an impressive assertion. Do you believe it? Unfortunately, Hezekiah does. And uh, see, for two years they're going to be able to eat the produce of the land, and uh, it would not be stolen by the Assyrians if they lived off the, if they lived off the land. And so, there were, you know, they, they've not been able to plant crops out the city walls because of the Assyrians' presence. But God promised that he would feed them for two years by causing the seed that had been sown naturally to grow up an adequate crop. And it's the third year they return to the normal cycle of sowing and reaping. That's what that earlier part was all about. Okay? By the way, Sennacherib had claimed to take about 200,000, over 200,000 prisoners from Judah. Judah might seemingly cease to exist as a nation through attrition, but God promised to revive it. And just like the crops, they would, they would uh, take root and bear fruit and so forth. And uh, God will see to it. By the way he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. So that's the message that Isaiah brings back to them. Um, now God is doing this for two reasons. For the sake of his own reputation, in verse 19, back there, and because of its promise to his servant David. Remember that was emphasized in 1 Kings 11 and so forth. So, came to pass, <laughs> this is one of the most interesting insights in the Bible about angels. Came to pass that night, guess what? That the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred fourscore and five thousand. That's a hundred and eighty-five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, those are the ones that were left, Behold, they were all dead corpses. Wow. Can you imagine 185,000 of your soldiers dying overnight? So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelled at Nineveh. A lot of people wonder, you know, what really happened? I don't know. I believe that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. Uh, there are books written where they speculate, well, that uh, maybe they, they uh, uh, you know, somehow it was the plague that got to them, or all these conjectures. And there's all kinds of, when you read some of these, they sound so plausible one, except, wait a minute, this is the Word of God. This is the, this is in the Septuagint, just this way. The Septuagint is the Greek translation that was the dominant piece of scriptures that went throughout the entire New Testament period. So I think it says what it means and means what it says. And I, and I think the fact, you know, I, I, I can, I, I, Sennacherib went back and for 20 years there was no more attacks. He didn't, he didn't come back against Assyria. Now there's another prophetic thing that's overlooked by most scholars and that is the prophecy here by Isaiah is that they, the Assyrians will not set foot in the city of Jerusalem. But when you read Micah 5 and Isaiah 10 and some other prophetic passages, you find a major world leader that's going to enter Jerusalem. And his label in those passages is the Assyrian. And many commentators assume that it's a historically fulfilled reference. I say no, because Isaiah says the, regarding the siege in Jerusalem that, that they wouldn't. And they go back and they don't reattack. They did attack the northern kingdom, that's history. But they don't attack Jerusalem. They took a lot of Judeans too, but they don't attack Jerusalem. 
So when that Assyrian attacks Jerusalem in the prophecies, that's something yet to happen. So be alert to that possibility as you study your scripture. Let's keep moving on here. came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sharezer, his son, smote him with a sword, and he, they, they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. So, so, uh, he, Sennacherib is, is, uh, he, uh, he gets, he, he gets, uh, killed. Um, he gets assassinated. And he, he, Sennacherib was worshiping, and, uh, this Assyrian deity that he's worshiping is, you know, part eagle, part human. You've probably seen models of that. And, uh, this is probably in Nineveh, although it doesn't say so. But he follows the plot of assassins. Uh, it turns out Esarhaddon succeeded Sennacherib as king, and he states in his writings that his brothers slew Sennacherib as a plot to gain the throne. And uh, Asher Banipal states that he slew those who slew Sennacherib, his grandfather. So his grandson has comments on this. So anyway, in any case, the word of the Lord back in verse 7 comes to pass. And just a couple more, and we'll be, we can squeeze this in before we're finished here. Let's go to a short chapter, chapter 20 because I want to finish Hezekiah. He's a great guy. So chapter 20, verse 1. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. The prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Ooh, boy. His illness, by the way, is recorded in three places, in Second Kings, uh, Second Chronicles 32, and uh, Isaiah 38. I think the purpose of this is to show that only the Lord can really comfort his people. But what does Hezekiah do? He's, he's not really, he's, he's, uh, he's frustrated. Um, he's going to get 15 more years, as we'll see in a minute. I'll tell you that in advance. But as we think about Hezekiah's predicament, let's realize that the sentence of death is on each one of us. Hebrews 9.27 is pointed to men once to die and after this the judgment. Hezekiah is told that he's gonna, it's, it's over. You and I, if we're intellectually honest with ourselves, know that we live also in a sentence death. But to us, it's academic. You know, we're all, we all sort of act like we're immortal. It's going to, you know. What would you do if you knew the day to your death? Would that change your life? Would that change your priorities? You know, I've had a lot of testimony of people that uh, got it from the doctor that they've got cancer. This, you know, they're suddenly facing a certain threshold of uncertainty. Um, change their life. Change your priorities. And you stand, and when you think about that for a minute, you sort of think, should it? Or should we be living our lives with a short fuse? That doesn't mean we shouldn't plan and prepare for the future. The, the, the scripture instructs us to do that. But at the same time, we should recognize the contingency of life. Because, you know, we're heartbeat away from a stroke or incapacitation or what have you. Anyway, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember how I have walked with thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And he could claim that because he did. And he wept sore. And uh, he was, he, he was, he was he, 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 responding to this bad news. He reminded God of his faithfulness and all that. And uh, this testimony is in detail in, in, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 38 also, by the way. There seems to be from the text some justification that Hezekiah wanted time to establish his moral reforms more firmly among the people. That part of his motivation emerges that he didn't want to go yet. His work was unfinished. He wanted to establish what he'd started with the people. Anyway, it came to pass that before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him saying, Isaiah hadn't even left the temple. He's out in the middle court. And the word of the Lord came to him saying, Turn again and tell Hezekiah the captain of my people. 
Thus saith the Lord, the God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer. I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord. In other words, he's going to, within three days, he's going to be, be able to go back, be able to, you know, get out of bed and go to him. I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Same two reasons emphasized there again. And Isaiah said, take this, take a lump of figs, and they took it and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. He apparently had a part of his sickness had to do with some boils. Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, What shall be the sign the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord on the third day? And Isaiah said, This sign shalt thou have of the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he hath spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or back ten degrees? He's talking about the shadow on the sundial. And Hezekiah answered, It's a light thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. Nay, let the shadow return backward ten degrees. Isaiah the prophet cried to the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. That's impressive. The more you know about celestial mechanics, the more impressive that is. How did he do it? I don't know. We could talk a lot about all the different conjectures. None of them, I can tell you, make any real sense. Uh, this, This shadow apparently falls on Ahaz's stairway. It was evidently a stairway that King Ahaz had built and had been constructed as, in effect, as a sundial to measure the time of day. And uh, it also was a staircase that was used properly, so apparently. So there's some conjectures exactly what that was. But in any case, the shadow going backward 10 degrees does not require the earth to stop rotating or turn the other way, as many people naively assume. You could accomplish this just by a slight precessional change. And that's probably what happened in Joshua chapter 10, where the sun stood still. But we don't know. This, because it just involves a shadow, could be done optically. The Lord could have somehow, you know, um, altered the refraction of something between the sun and the shadow to bend it. There's all kinds of uh, possibilities. Uh, we have no insight at all. But I do want to acquaint you with a story that keeps coming up. It's been around for more than 30 years. And that is this idea that uh, they somehow the scientists have somehow determined that by looking at celestial dynamics that there's a missing day in the universe. And they're all puzzled about it until they read Joshua 10, which accounts not for 24 hours, but for about 23 hours and 10 minutes. If you look at the shadow, the, the moon being in the Valley of Agilon and all that business, and there's still about uh, 40 minutes that's missing. And uh, uh, they feel that, oh, then it's found here in Second Kings uh, 20, verse 10, that the sundial accounts for the missing minutes. Well, uh, this uh, urban legend is nonsense. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, there's, there's no substantiation for it. I'm fascinated that it continues to make the Christian circles. You'll hear people talk about the missing day. Scientists discovered a missing day. I have yet to find anyone that can explain to me how the scientists found out there's a missing day. Uh, that's, that's, that's specious on the face of it. Um, I, I may be wrong. I'm speaking just from my own knowledge. But if you run across that, treat it skeptically. If you find some real documentation about it, I would love to see it because it's been echoing for decades. There's NASA versions and there's versions even before NASA was built. So it's, uh, it's, it's amusing. But anyway, let's move on. At that time, Beradach Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he'd heard that Hezekiah had been sick. So Babylon, by the way, up till now, has been sort of a pawn, a, a, a city in Assyria, a pawn of uh, Assyrian politics, but it's on the rise. It'll turn out in, in not too many years. But uh, Babylon is, in effect, a rebellious part of Assyria. 
And Hezekiah hearkened unto them. See, they sent this flattering letter and thing, and Hezekiah hearkened to them and showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the precious ointment, and all the house of his armor. Oh, boy. And all that was found in his treasures. Here is his ego. He's on an ego trip. He's showing them, first of all, all his treasures. So if they need gold, they know where to find it now. And he shows them all his armor. He shows them his, his military technology, if you will. And all that was found in his treasures. And there's nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Stupid move, buddy. Really stupid move. We've got to watch out for pride. We've got to watch out for ego. It's really dumb move, buddy. Really dumb move. These Babylonian visitors got the full tour. And I'm sure they were taking notes and taking pictures with their Polaroid cameras. Then came Isaiah the prophet of the king Hezekiah and said to them, What said these men, and from whence came they unto thee? As if he didn't know. Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country, even from Babylon. As if, see how they came that way to see me. And he, that's Isaiah, said, What have they seen in thine house? I visualize Isaiah having quite a skeptical tone to his voice. Hezekiah answered, All the things that are in mine house have they seen. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. I can visualize Isaiah looking pretty crestfallen. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house, and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day, shall be carried into Babylon, and nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Oh boy. Well, Hezekiah knows when he's licked. Then said Hezekiah and Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. And he said, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? So Hezekiah, he's reconciled to this. He's reconciled to this. Tragic, tragic end of his, of his, in effect, coming to the end of his career. Tragic, tragic. He will ultimately repent of his pride, we'll learn from Second Chronicles 32. And he humbly accepted the fact that God's judgment would come upon the nation, and he's grateful that it won't be in his days. And verse 20, And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, and how he made a pool and a conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? What Hezekiah built, by the way, the primary spring, the Gihon Spring, was outside the city walls, but in a siege they need water to keep the people up. So he made a tunnel. He had, and they dug it from both ends, and I don't know how they did it, because it's very strange, remarkable. It wiggles, but they, they, they meet. And uh, then they hide the spring, and that water fills the pool of Siloam, for, which is inside the wall, and that tunnel you can go through if you visit Jerusalem. You'll go. You'll wade through water about to through your knees or below your waist anyway uh, to go through it. But you can go through the famous uh, the 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 the, the uh, Hezekiah's tunnel. It's one of the the sites the sites you can you can see. But it's, it was a very critical strategic capability that he established. And so he uh, I made a pool of conduit and brought water into the city as mentioned here in the scripture. And he slept with his fathers, and Manasseh his son reigned in his stead. And that is tragic bad news. Manasseh, his son, will reign. And Manasseh is the worst of the bunch. Manasseh 
During his days, there was blood from border to border, the Scripture says. Not in the Scripture, but the tradition also says that it was Manasseh that sawed Isaiah in half with a wooden saw. Um, Manasseh is so bad that God pronounces a judgment. It's over for the southern kingdom. Not wiped out like the northern kingdom. They're going to go into captivity for seven years, and I'll explain exactly why seven years when we get there. But... Uh, um, the, uh, when Josiah comes along after Manasseh, he's a good guy. And as a, as a, as a, condi- as, as a, as a, uh, um, a compromise, I can't get the word I want, as an accommodation to Josiah, because he's a good guy, the judgment's still coming of, because of Manasseh, but it won't come in his days. And it's going to be a very, very important time. So, therein lies this last session. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for these lessons. We pray, Father, that you would make us sensitive to the possible parallels of the predicament of the southern kingdom and ourselves. Father, we see such parallels with the northern kingdom, which would imply that judgment is overdue for our own land. But, Father, let us be more like the southern kingdom in that we should look at the northern kingdom for a lesson that we can recognize the realities that surround us. Help us, Father, to have a revival in our land and let it begin with each of us. Help us, Father, to do those things which are pleasing in thy sight and help us, Father, to be sensitive to those things which are abhorrent to you, Father. Help us, Father, to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior. Help us, Father, to be more fruitful stewards of the incredible gifts you've given us. Help us, Father, to be more fully committed into your hands as we come to you without reservation. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Musler, teaching through the book of 2 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.